Today on Ag News Daily. So I think that's been the discussion is how do we put something out there as far as a resource that's going to arm our producers to have a better understanding of what's what's possible. What are, what are the big four hackers agreeing to in their negotiations with, with other producers? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr here, joined again by Delaney Howell. Delaney, I would say that I am ready for the weekend because it's Thursday. We only have one more real work day left here, but I've got a final to finish this weekend. So I don't really think I'm going to be having too much fun this weekend. Well, but then you're done with the semester, Ashton. So that is the good news. The light of the end of the tunnel. You are totally right there. I am looking forward to being done for the semester, but that doesn't mean I'm done for work, of course, because we're going to continue to record episodes here throughout December as we enter into 2022. But this episode that we're recording here, Delaney, of course, is brought to you by the National Pork Board. Request your free on-farm sustainability report at porkcheckoff.org slash sustainability. And if you're wanting to know a little bit more about that sustainability report, we did talk about it yesterday on the podcast. So be sure to check that out at agnewsdaily.com. But with that, Delaney, is there any other chit-chat that you want to get out of the way here before we talk some news? I don't have a whole lot of chit-chat today, Ashton, so I'm ready to just hop right into the news here. Got a couple of big stories today. You know, we're still really watching how the uh, new Delta, or excuse me, the new Omicron variant is impacting the commodity markets. And a lot of folks on Wall Street are calling it a quote-unquote risk-on trade where we're seeing a lot of folks taking a lot of different positions, some folks taking advantage of the situation while we've seen these recent pullbacks to buy into the markets, others, of course, liquidating their positions. But overall, we're still seeing that really played out in the marketplace. And, um, you know, I don't read, I've got to be honest, a whole lot of COVID-related news day-to-day just because I try to stay away from it. But I did read something earlier this morning that said, Uh, We're getting mixed messages about the vaccination, the three different vaccinations, and whether or not they have an effectiveness towards this new variant. So mixed messaging there really has created this risk-on environment in the markets, and we're certainly see that uh, play out into even today. You know, Delaney, I'm trying to stay away from a lot of COVID news right now, too, because like you said, there is some uncertainty, even as to the severity of symptoms, how transmittable this is. So, you know, I think that the first case of the Omicron variant, I think I read earlier today was November 25th. So we've still got a little bit of research to do before we're pretty certain about this one. But I'm going to move on here because I have two updates coming from D.C. The first one I am not so sure about because it's talking about biofuels blending obligations. And it says that the U.S. administration is planning to propose in days the amount of biofuels that oil refiners must blend into their fuel mix for this year as well as next year. You know, I don't trust completely this timeline because it just says days. It doesn't say, you know, a specific date in mind, but I'm not too surprised by this because we did, you know, miss that deadline just two days ago, but just a small update there. And then I have another one talking about our port issues that we've been seeing. And it says that the Biden administration 
is saying that there are fewer problems now at America's ports. John Porcari, who is the port envoy for Biden's Supply Chain Disruptions Task Force, says that goods are moving in and out now better than they were even just a few short weeks ago. He told Brownfield the task force is also doing what it can to make sure containers are full when they leave the U.S. Because that was a, a big issue that we were seeing is that they were coming over to the U.S. and going back to Asia empty. And so Perkari says that they're really focusing on ag goods and that they're aware of shipping companies that are rushing empty containers back to Asia without taking U.S. products. So I think that that's been a big concern for them. And I... I'm excited for this, of course, as we're approaching the holiday season, really hopeful that, you know, this is something that we're going to be seeing, that our ports are becoming unclogged. But this is such a, a large issue that we've been following for months now that I'm not so sure that it's really going to be a, a fast change here, going to be one that kind of develops as time moves on. And hopefully we see you know, our ports go back to normal, although I'm not sure if they will. I feel like life is a little not so normal anymore. We're kind of having to shift and adjust. And, you know, I think people, because of the pandemic, are buying a lot more online. I think that online shopping is just something, you know, especially with the holidays approaching, that people are doing more of these days. So, of course, going to continue to watch the port story here, but hopefully we can return to a new normal. Well, it is going to be a little bit, I think, before we see, quote unquote, a new normal happen, Ashton. Um, and, you know, part of the, the reason we've had a lot of these issues has been the workforce and issues there with getting people up and working and helping that kind of resolve supply chain issues, you know, but we're starting to see a lot of new information come to light about different components of the supply chain. And I don't know that I've shared this on the podcast. I know I've definitely shared it in some recent speeches, Ashton, but 17% of all U.S. strikes happened in the month of October alone. So, you know, we watched really closely there, the John Deere strike. There was a strike going on at Kellogg's. Another one here that I was not aware of was going on between Cargill and their unionized workers at the High River, Alberta, Canada beef processing plant. And according to agweb.com, a tentative agreement between Cargill and its unionized workers has been reached according to the company and their United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Local 401. And uh, this agreement would avoid the threatened strike that was going to go into a place on December 6th had they not come to an agreement. Agreement. But the labor union said on Wednesday that it's recommending its members accept the latest contract offer. And so about 1,400 employees will vote on this agreement through December 4th, which would hopefully prevent any sort of strike up there at this Canada facility. But it's basically a six-year collective agreement. You know, it's going to be interesting too, I think, Ashton, to see how many country or how many companies slash union workers take a play out of John Deere's playbook and say, hey, they were able to accomplish this. I think we can, too. I think that you really just took the words right out of my mouth there, Delaney, because I was looking at this story, too. It was one that I wasn't aware of because I guess this has been going on for a little bit now, especially if they have a strike that was planned to take place just on Monday here. But like you said, they're going to vote on it on the 4th. 
and hopefully they take it because I would hate to see any issues come from this. But I think it's interesting because this plan or this agreement includes retroactive pay, signing bonuses, a 21% wage increase over the life of the contract and improved health benefits. So it sounds to me like this is a, a pretty hefty agreement. So I'm right there with you. I'm wondering how many companies, particularly in the ag industry, are really going to follow suit here and push for you know higher wages, increased benefits, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's certainly a good question and one that will uh, remain to be seen, that's for sure. Well, Delaney, I'll say that I won't strike, so you won't have to worry about increasing my pay. Any okay, well, benefits. that's good. You don't have a union to protect you. So you're kind of screwed there, Ashton. (laughs) Yeah, it's just me, just me. So I'm not going to, you know, try to follow along there. But I just have one other piece of news that I wanted to share with you today. But before we get into that, I want to once again mention the National Pork Board Sustainability Report. As a pig farmer, you know that sustainability is doing what's right for people, pigs, and the planet. However, doing what's right must be shared with today's savvy consumers to help grow public trust in pig farming while protecting your freedom to operate. To measure and document your farm sustainability efforts, National Pork Board encourages you to create a free on-farm sustainability report. These reports can help increase production efficiencies and improve your bottom line. Request your free report at porkcheckoff.org sustainability. With that, Delaney, I am going to kick things over to Russia for my final piece of news here, because a shipment of Russian fertilizers that were destined for export were suspended yesterday due to the absence of export licenses. Moscow previously decided to limit exports of nitrogen fertilizers and complex nitrogen-containing fertilizers for up to six months just to try to curb any further increase in food prices amid higher gas prices. And so I'm guessing, I'm kind of just reading some context clues here that they were supposed to have these export licenses And so those who did not register their cargo by December 1st could not send their ships out. So vessels are stuck near seaports as they could not unload fertilizer while cargo piled in the port. So it looks like there was a bit of congestion there. But these export licenses are expected to be distributed on December 5th through the 6th. So a little bit of congestion there, and hopefully that'll get resolved at the beginning of next week. Well, Ashton, I have a quick update here on the South American crop season because we've got some fresh updates today about how their crop is looking down there in Brazil. Because as you know, we continue to talk each week to market analysts. That's really, aside from COVID, what the markets are tending to watch right now is how that crop is shaping up. Well, according to StoneX's Brazilian team, they are saying that a recent customer survey is pegging this year's Brazilian crop at a record just over 145,000 metric tons and that this crop is looking pretty good. You know, they said there's certainly some localized regions that are dry, just like we get here in the Midwest. But for the most part, most areas have seen some pretty good rain with the exception of the Rio Grande do Sul area in the far southern portion of Brazil, which is pretty dry, which is typical for a La Nina weather pattern. So it's expected that 
Brazil's harvest will start to take place here by the end of this month, and that those supplies will be quickly loaded and head there or start their 45-day journey to China, which is going to create some friction, I'm sure, in the U.S. markets as that will pretty much finalize the end of our major exporting window. So definitely something to keep an eye on there as we continue to watch how this Brazilian crop does impact what's going on here in U.S. markets. But Ashton, I had just one other quick piece of news here as we look at some crop-related news. BASF has joined the joined the bandwagon and announced plans to launch a global carbon farming program here in 2022. They said on Thursday that they plan to launch this program to enable farmers to reduce their CO2 emissions and that this program will support growers worldwide to farm more sustainably and carbon efficient and also supplement BASF's sustainability and agriculture commitment to reduce CO2 emissions by 30% per ton of crop by 2030. They didn't give a whole lot of specifics about how they intend to go about launching this program, what the specifics will be to measure it, but they did say that it will promote sustainable agricultural practices and foster the best use of BASF's holistic portfolio for farmers from seeds, traits, innovative chemical and biological crop production products to digital farming and fertilizer management solutions. So we will certainly watch to see how that new program is unveiled. Well, Delaney, I am ready to hop into the markets today as I am fresh out of news. So what do you say we get into it? We certainly shall hop right into those markets here, Ashton. Just as soon as I mentioned to folks one more time, you mentioned it earlier, today's podcast is sponsored by the National Pork Board. We chatted about their new sustainability reports that you can request for free for your farm. But as a pig farmer, you know that sustainability is doing what's right, not only for the people, the pigs, but also the planet. However, doing what's right must be shared with today's savvy consumers to help grow public trust in pig farming while protecting your freedom to operate. To measure and document your farm's sustainability efforts, National Pork Board encourages you to create an a free on-farm sustainability report. These reports can help increase production efficiencies and improve your bottom line. Request your free report today at porkcheckoff.org slash sustainability. And Ashton, with that, we are going to hop over here and chat markets. We certainly saw a little bit of a turnaround today as markets seem to now have shrugged off the news of this recent COVID variant and are focusing on longer term fundamentals. Today, March corn closed five and a quarter cent higher to end at 576 and three quarters. Beast 22 up just half a cent to close at 549. In the soybean pits, that strength continued as the January contract added 16 cents to close at 1244 and a quarter. The March added 15 to close at 1250. The wheat complex was higher today as the December Chicago contract excuse me, I should say March contract as we entered expiration there, March of 24 and a half cents today to close at 8.15. The December 22 contract up 15 and a half cents to close at 8.05. In the livestock pits, we saw that strength continue aside from January feeders, which did close a nickel lower today at 165.77 and a half. March feeders up 42 and a half cents to close at 168.32 and a half. 
In the live cattle pits today, the, the February contract up 97.5 cents to close at 139.57.5. The April up 82.5 cents, closing the day at 142.60. Hopping over into the lean hog markets, that strength was carried out here as well with the February contract adding $1.87.5 to close at 82 dollars on the nose. The April up a dollar twenty-five to close at a six thirty-two and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. January up twenty cents today to close at eighteen thirty. The February up a nickel to close at eighteen fifty-nine. Ashton, fill us in on who we are chatting with from the recent NAFB convention. Well, Dawson was able to catch up with Ethan Lane, who we've had on the podcast before. Of course, Ethan is from NCBA, so they talked about Brazil and BSE. Well, today we are joined with Ethan Lane, the Vice President of Government Affairs at NCBA. We're kind of wanting to talk policy here with the NCBA, and most recently, the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act kind of was became a consolidated bill with the Senate recently and uh, trying to go about looking at different ag groups that are in support of the bill. However, we did see that the NCBA is not one of those supporting uh, entities. Can you kind of give us an overview on that? You bet. You know, this has been a priority issue for our members across the country for the last couple of years. Uh, price discovery, I think, has been kind of top of mind for everybody uh, as we've gone through the, can- the pandemic and, and seen these big price spreads in the industry between uh, box beef cutouts and, and live cattle prices. The bills that are being contemplated on the Hill, and in particular this new uh, combined effort, is is something that, you know, NCBA has broad policy to support the vast majority of. Cattle contract, library, 14-day delivery, window, um, you know, next day carcass weight, you know, looking for some solutions there. Those are all things that we're, we're squarely on board with. Um, the, the mandate that would require the government to um, enforce a, a minimum mandated negotiated trade level is something that we don't have policy currently to support. Our, our producers around the country have have uh, made it clear in the policy book that, that we use um, for determining whether we engage in a bill or not, that they don't want any kind of mandate that would restrict their ability to choose what marketing method they want. Now, that being the case, we also have this evolving conversation, right, on this issue over the last few years. We've had a voluntary effort to increase negotiated trade at NCBA that's resulted in pretty pretty substantial increases in cash trade in places like Texas and Kansas and those areas of the country that have been deficient, where that thin cash market is really on full display. So it's going to be interesting to see how those efforts contrast against sort of the evolution of the Grassley 5014 bill and the Fisher Cattle Market Transparency Act and now this combination uh, effort. You know, this to us feels like a pretty substantial departure for Senator Grassley from where he's been on this on this issue. I mean, he's been kind of a cash trade purist, right? Looking for that 50% number. The bill that, that, that has been introduced here would cap Iowa uh, in the low 30s by our math, you know, as far as cash trade requirement. Um, it, it really sort of feels to us uh, in how those numbers would play out as a, a more of an effort to redistribute AMA use throughout the five area rather than just discourage it, you know, in favor of more cash, which has been kind of the, 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 the effort in the past. So we're, we're going to be interested to see kind of how that conversation plays out amongst other members of the Senate. 
um, you know, outside of Iowa and Nebraska. I mean, there's some pretty, you know, pretty, uh, uh, pretty hardened views on those, on those cash trade, you know, requirements in those areas of the country. And, and there are some views in other areas of the country that are, that are just as adamant on the other side of it. We have all of those members in NCBA. And so our responsibility is to continue that dialogue, continue that discussion, make sure all those voices are represented and figure out some kind of a, uh, a policy, you know, position moving forward that's representative of the whole industry. And just to backtrack a little bit, can you kind of, you're talking about no mar- mandatory policy, more voluntary. Can you kind of give us an overview of what NCBA is doing to kind of promote resources to uh, producers and everything moving forward forward with this? Yeah. So, you know, our voluntary efforts over the last year have been focused on using the best research available, which there there isn't enough of, right? There's never enough research on this stuff. But Dr. Stephen Kuntz's numbers on what's needed for robust uh, trade at a regional level um, is kind of the underpinnings of the Fisher Bill. It's the underpinnings of our uh, of our uh, voluntary system. But helping those producers to understand what's needed in their various areas of the country is kind of job number one. Hey, this is how light This is how thin cash trade is in Texas, right? This is why Colorado is not reporting uh, because of confidentiality problems 60, 70% of the time because there's not enough, there's not enough buyers, there's not enough cash trade in those, in those areas to report. So then the next step in that process clearly is looking at what are the different avenues to generate more of that negotiated trade, that cash trade in a way that the producers that are engaging in it aren't taking a loss to do it. Because I think that's been a lot of the feeling, right? Is okay, fine, there's a lot of AMA trade going on in Texas and Kansas, and those producers are benefiting from a lot of premiums, and producers in Iowa and Nebraska are raising some of the best cattle in the world, right? And and they're not getting those same premiums, or they're feeling like they're not getting paid for what they're producing in the same way. But if you look at the two different regions, they have a history of trading cattle in different ways. So how do we how do we bridge that gap? That's really the focus, I think, of, of, of the industry's efforts right now is whether it's some of these online sales tools, whether it's um, you know some other uh, some other means of establishing a negotiated base price, so that so that there's there there is that price discovery occurring, right? That's kind of I think where everybody's heads are going is what's next? How do we how do we continue to do this in a way that makes it worth it for producers to trade cash and not feel like they're doing a service rather than making the best decision for their business? So even to go off of that, another headline of that is the contract library. Can you kind of? Speak to that and exactly what that will do, uh, especially with bringing forth that transparency. Well, you know, I think the perception for a lot of producers that aren't engaged in marketing cattle through a formula or a grid is that there's kind of a secret, there's a secret club, right? And you hear this referenced in public statements and you hear it talked about on the internet, um, you know, that these sweetheart deals that are, that are being conducted. Well, it's 80% of the industry. It's 80% of the market now, right? But what we don't have is enough real understanding of what different options are available. What what things the producers out there that aren't using these might want to think about negotiating for when they're negotiating with the packers to market their own cattle. The pork industry has done this, although it, there's kind of mixed reviews on whether they, they, they got it right. You know, I think we hear a lot of our people saying, we need a contract library, but we don't want the, the swine contract library. We want something that works a little better. So I think that's been the discussion is how do we put something out there as far as a resource that's going to arm our producers to have a better understanding of what's, what's possible. What are, what are the big four packers agreeing to in their negotiations with, with other producers in the, in the industry? And what might they want to pursue in their own negotiations with them? Um, that seems to be sort of coalescing around the idea of, uh, uh, you know, a, a product through ag marketing service and market news, where they'd be able to report out sort of trends and regional um, regional uh, numbers from those different contracts throughout the 
throughout the five area. There's a lot of work still to be done to figure out how to make sure that works in a way that's really useful for producers. I think there's a concern that you tilt this thing up and no one uses it, right? Um, and that's true with a lot of these tools. There's a reason that the Johnson bill that was passed out of the House Ag Committee a few weeks ago on this has a component for producer education, making sure that there's resources available once we implement a contract library so that producers know how to take full advantage of it and really use it uh, to, to make more money on their cattle and regain more leverage in that, in that transaction with the Packers. Um, that's an exciting, that's an exciting piece of this to work on. It's one area where everyone really agrees, I think. Um, so it's, it's somewhere where we can really kind of push forward and get some work done. Kind of, kind of switching gears here. BSE is another rising issue with, uh, Brazilian imports and NCBA has come out and pressuring the USDA and Vilsack to start to ban those imports. Can you kind of speak to that? You bet. You know, when you look back at the last 10 years or so, the Brazilians have a pretty consistent track record of uh, late reporting on atypical BSE outbreaks. Atypical BSE is not a threat to the supply chain. You know, that's something we always want to remind people of. It's not classical BSE. It's not the same as 2003, the cow that stole Christmas. It's spontaneously occurring. But we report these things in a timely manner within 24 hours to the World Organization for Animal Health, the OIE, specifically so that we know that system works. Right. In case there is an outbreak that we need to react to and shut down, you know, a pipeline somewhere to ensure that we don't have a spread of something that, that could cause a real problem in the industry, whether it be BSE, whether it be FMD. You know, I mean, there are all of these different uh, things out there that could be problematic. The rest of the world reports these on a regular basis. You know, we have one here in the U.S., 24 hours or so. We report at the OIE. Everyone recognizes it's there, recognize that it's atypical and we move on. Brazil's history over 10 years plus is 40 days, 70 days, two years in some cases to get these reports out the door. And that's simply not acceptable to producers in the United States. Having access to the U.S. market needs to be a privilege, not a right. And if you can't play by the same rules as other countries that are that are trading in the U.S., then your access needs to be suspended until such time as you can demonstrate that you can play by those rules. So we're asking USDA to do exactly that. We're asking them to conduct a risk assessment, look at their diagnostic process in Brazil, and we're asking to see a trend of reporting properly before we even start to talk about re renewing their access to the U.S. market. And just kind of going off of that, looking in the future, if, you know, if they're not able to clean that up or, you know, even if they do and closely monitoring that in the future, is Brazil, are they going to be a reliable trade partner when it comes to livestock and uh, animal products? Well, remember, Brazilians trade beef in the U.S. under the general quota, right? They don't have their own trade deal with the U.S. on, on this stuff. So and in the Trump administration, I think the president had a couple times mentioned, you know, wanting to talk to Bolsonaro about a trade deal. And, I mean, we, we watched that and kind of kind of bristled at it a little bit. And said, no, 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 wait a minute. We don't, let's, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, there have been concerns, right? We do have a history of challenges. Now, there are a lot of things we work with the Brazilians on. We really agree with them on, too. Antimicrobial resistance policy, you know, talking about that on a global scale and making sure that we're not being penalized in our production system here in the United States. That's something that the Brazilians, you know, have, have been on the same side as us on. There are issues like that where, you know, we all have common cause, but we, we, we have to be looking at the safety of the U.S. supply chain. That has got to be job number one, two, and three, is making sure that we preserve the integrity and the security of the U.S. cattle and beef supply chain. We're producing the highest quality beef in the world, and we're doing it better than anyone's ever done it. We cannot afford to let anybody else that's producing that same product imp impact that in a negative way. So that's going to continue to be our focus. Uh, you know, and, and as far as whether they can be a reliable trading partner, that's up to them to demonstrate whether they can play by the same rules everybody else does. 
and keeping along the lines with the international trade, but moving away from Brazil. I mean, the last couple of weeks we've seen uh, increased exports with beef, uh, with China, Taiwan, Japan. Uh, with high quality beef and producing that, is are we going to see that hopefully continue here at least in the short term? Boy, they sure seem to be strong markets for us. I mean, the Chinese market, I think, has a lot of upward potential, but it's also an unpredictable market. I mean, 700% plus increase in, in uh, imports into China from the U.S. in the last year. That's obviously a, a result of the phase one China deal and that and renewed access to the Chinese market. Um, you know, depending on who you're talking to, I think people feel like there's there's quite a bit of room left to grow in that market. There's room left to grow in the Japanese market. I mean, we hit our safeguard in year one of the Japanese bilateral agreement last year. You know, and saw those tariff rates increase right at the at the you know one yard line, basically, 11 months in. I know they're working on sort of trying to look at those safeguard levels and make sure we have enough headroom to import as much product as the Japanese consumers want. I mean, that's already a 1.7 billion dollar market, I think, through through this month. Uh, South Korean markets the same way. Um, you know, we have some really strong demand in Asia. We're talking to the UK. We're looking for opportunities to start building more business in those markets as well. Um, the, the story of U.S. beef and its footprint around the world is a really, really good one. Wherever we show up, it's difficult for anyone else in the world to compete. People around the world love the taste of what we produce. They like the story. They they, they choose us over other countries' beef every time they're given the opportunity. We want to capitalize on that. We want to make sure we're still we're continuing to grow that opportunity any chance we get. All right, Ethan. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again there to Ethan for chatting with Dawson at NAFB. I think some of those things are pretty timely as we're seeing the story with Brazil develop over time here. But Delaney, if any of our listeners want to go back and listen to any of the NAFB conversations that we've already shared, they can do so at agnewsdaily.com and continue to follow along as we share those stories here in the next few weeks. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.